everyone, this is Jerry Lee, co-host of Algae Talk. This is part two of our conversation with Brian Vickery. If you missed the first part, make sure you catch that one before you go to the rest of our conversation. And as always, relevant disclosures will be at the end of the pod- podcast. All right, let's get started. And when you came here, you saw the tail end of your project with the yeah the algae advisory committee meeting at the FDA in September. So yeah, I love you to. I mean, I'm not sure. I'm not sure how those are held and what involves. So tell me about that experience at that meeting. Yeah, that, so that was my first um, experience uh, attending one too. So this is the the there's a standing committee called the Allergenics allergenic products advisory committee that advises the FDA on allergenic products. Um, and you know, I'm not an expert in this area, but my understanding is that, you know, the FDA will convene advisory committee meetings when it seeks advice that it would find useful about making a decision. Um, and in this case, obviously, you know, they've never, um, made a decision about a drug with a food allergy indication. So this is a precedent setting thing that like what, issues should they consider so they set this advisory committee meeting up um they selected a a panel of independent experts all of whom had been sort of thoroughly vetted for conflicts um and um had the meeting um in their main offices in white oak in like the headquarters um the day started with um pam guerrero from nih um who came and gave an an overview of sort of like the current state of food allergy, the things we know, the things we don't know kind of future directions, um, which I I understand is, is not common for, um, for an advisory committee to have sort of like a level setting presentation about the field from like a, a person at NIH or somewhere like that. Pam did an amazing job. It was like she, she's, she's so great. And, but she just knocked it out of the park. Um, really thorough, um, um, and comprehensive, but also very digestible. Um, the, the, you know, there's a lectern at the front of the room and a big, um, screen. Um, and the panel is seated at sort of like one of these U-shaped tables right in, right in the front. And then there's like a couple of rows of observers on either side of the panelists. And then the whole back of the room is, is, the, the audience, like the public who can come because it's a, you know, it's a public agency and the, the public can come. So Pam started, then, um, the sponsor presented the sponsor's data and took questions. Um, and that was the part that I played a, a role and I got called to answer two questions, um, to provide clinical context about like, you know, as a, as a, as a person who sees food allergy patients, you know, what does this mean to you? Um, so I, I didn't really speak to the data or the study, but just sort of tr- to provide some, some context. Um, there were other questions. Then um, what happens after that is the FDA presents the same data and their conclusions on the same data. So the sponsor, I learned the sponsor has to submit all their raw data, all their SAS files, to the FDA, the FDA then does their own independent analysis. So you can't you can't hide anything, you can't fudge anything, you can't you know make the mm. data cut or look a certain way because mm. they're gonna they're gonna present their own take on the data, which they did in the afternoon. Right, um, mm. and that was really interesting. Um, and then there was a there was an open public hearing. So 
um, that gives the audience members who are there an opportunity to come to the microphone and make some public comments. Um, and I think they each got three or four minutes. Um, the 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 um, speaking order got filled up pretty quickly, and I think they had to lottery the the requests off. I think. Oh, wow. Um, and there was a little timer uh, on the on the little lectern, but it was amazing. You had um, there were like five year old kids that got up there and spoke. These little bitty kids with their like Sunday best clothes, with yeah. Kind of, tiptoe up to the microphone and you know like their little squeaky little voices and they're in this room full of people <laughs> right and they're talking about you know their experience of living with a peanut allergy and a couple of them had been in the trials and they talked a little bit about what it means for them like about where they can sit at lunch now or the things they can do differently and how they felt impacted um so a number of the families had had participated in the trial and had their travel to the meeting had been sponsored by Amune. Um, so they were sort of picked to describe their experience. Um, there were other speakers who had been in other trials. Um, there were other speakers who were not, um, you know, who who were not personally affected or were not research participants. So like the the CEO of a few of the different advocacy organizations spoke. Dr. Wood spoke. Uh, from the perspective of um, I am, you know, somebody who studies this, I am the PI of COFAR, I also have a peanut allergy myself, um, kind of wearing all those hats. Uh, a representative who was a congressperson who is an allergist, a trained allergist, and I'm sorry I'm blanking on his name, but he was one of the um, architects of the Affordable Care Act, came and spoke. So you had this whole range of voices right. in the open public hearing, which is really interesting. Yeah. Um, and then at the end, there was a deliberation and a vote. And um, so the, the committee then sort of turned to like the business of the day to sort of decide like, you know, did what you hear make you want to recommend to the FDA to, to approve this or not? Mm -hmm. um, and they're being watched by this room full of people, you know, so they're engaging with each other. They can ask questions to other people, but they're pretty much having a, you know, a discussion among themselves. And then at the end of the discussion, the FDA asked them two questions to vote on. Um, and, and it was basically do the, do the efficacy data warrant approval and do the safety data warrant approval um, with an appropriate safety mitigation plan in place. Um, and if we have another minute, I can talk about that. But the, they, they, the FDA poses the question to the committee. The committee votes. They use those audience response clickers, you know, like you do sometimes. Right. Um, <laughs> and so you get immediate, you got immediate results on the screen about what the vote was. Yeah. And by name. So you know which panelists voted yay and which panelists voted nay uh -huh. immediately after the question. And then mm -hmm. they would go around and explain why they voted the mm -hmm. way they voted. Um, so the first one was about efficacy and the second one was about safety. Um, and I think one of the things that was somewhat unique about this particular one, again, was they changed the, they changed the safety question after they put it on the screen, um, given the discussion. Because it basically said, like, since you've seen these safety data, um, assume we make these three requirements for, to require safe use of the drug, A, B, and C would you vote for approval? And the discussion went like, well, um, 
those three things are fine, but that's not all you should do. You need to do much more than that to ensure safe use of the drug. So if you're asking me if these three things are acceptable, I'm going to say no. You know, oh. I'm going to vote no because I think you need to do more than that. Mm-hmm. Um, and there, like everybody agreed around the table. Um, so you would have gotten a no vote on that, I think. But they said, well, okay, hold on. So that's a very good discussion. Um, for the purposes of the vote, we'll, we'll assume that there's a more comprehensive safety plan than what you see on the slide. Assume that we're going to do a lot more than this. That's still to be negotiated. Oh, to be determined. Yeah. Um, if we go farther than that, if we do a comprehensive safety plan, you know, would you then vote for approval? And then, the, and then they voted eight to one in favor. Mm-hmm. Um, but it, that discussion really changed how the vote went because, you know, they took the feedback from the panelists to say, no, you need to do a lot more than this. Do you have any comments on that study in the Lancet back in April on adverse events and yeah, so, immunotherapy? Yeah, I mean, so so it, it was it was well done. Um, you know, it was a meta-analysis. So by definition, the data were already available. Mm-hmm. Um, some meta-analyses try to pull unpublished data in, but in this case, they, they were all published data, so they were all things that we already knew. Um, the Palisade study, as the largest study that's been done, got the most weight in the meta-analysis um, mm-hmm. for obvious reasons. Um, so it reported things that we had already observed right. before, which were that if you give people thing they're, the thing they're allergic to, you're going to get allergic reactions. Um, you're going to get anaphylaxis. You're going to get a need to, to, to utilize epinephrine. Um, and it, it also reported that you know the, the patient-reported outcome data are are sparse that, you know, we're typically measuring endpoints like how people do in food challenges um, and safety endpoints and not do they feel better. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, uh, you know, all of that was um, well done and clearly um, articulated in the paper. I I think, um, you know, I think the part that was a little bit more controversial was then the position that this this demonstrates that the benefit risk proposition right. is not favorable and you know that we need to sort of um that has been used by others to say like well this is you know this is a harmful treatment this is this is not an appropriate treatment um and that's the part i i don't agree with mm-hmm. um, you know per se right um i think obviously um like any treatment, um, OIT is not right for every patient, right? So aspirin is not right for every patient. It's it's about like finding the right patient mm-hmm. and putting the right patient on the right treatment. And if a if a patient's not a good candidate, not using that treatment or using a different approach, and that's just what we do every day as doctors. So to say just monolithically, like, well, it's bad for everybody. That's, I mean, I have a different interpretation. I right. think. You know, if you look at the the relative risk to use um, epinephrine was, I think, 2.2 in the study or, or, or to have anaphylaxis. Mm-hmm. It was around there, like have a relative risk of two, two and a half. Um, well, the reality is the relative risk is probably one for some patients and it's probably five for other patients. The point estimate is mm-hmm. 2.2. And, the, and the, the, what's what our job is, is to find the ones where the relative risk is one. Right. Because there are plenty of patients who do really well on this therapy. So, so on that note, can I just ask like how would you choose the right patient for the therapy? Like, do you offer to all patients or patients who have a severe history of food allergy or those who 
react to lower doses during food challenges? So patient selection um, is, you know, something that nobody really has the answer to. Um, and I think we're all going to kind of approach this differently. Um, you know, I, I look at that, I, I think about that question from the standpoint of like, in whom would the treatment be contraindicated? Like, who would I not offer it to? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, somebody that has um, severe asthma by NHLBI or any other asthma criterion, um, or somebody who has, you know, particularly difficult to control asthma is somebody for whom I would not really feel comfortable utilizing this treatment. Um, if somebody had um, EOE that was very difficult to control, um, I would not mm -hmm. probably offer this treatment. If somebody had had a history of anaphylaxis to peanut that was so severe that they were intubated and were really on the verge of dying, we'd have to think long and hard about that. I mean, clearly those patients might benefit, but then they may also have some safety mm -hmm. issues. Um, so those are kind of the areas where I'd have a lot of concern. Um, beyond that, then you get into like who's the sort of the optimal patient. Right. I think the one the, what mm -hmm. we know is that generally speaking, um, the lower your IgE level is when you start, the better you tend to do. Um, but realize that like lots of patients with high IgE levels also do fine. Mm -hmm. There's a loose association there, but a number of studies have pointed to people with high IgE levels just being somewhat harder to desensitize. They're sort of, it's like sort of a marker of treatment resistance. doesn't mean that you shouldn't offer it, but mm -hmm. you, you would approach those patients knowing that they're going to have a little bit of a bumpier course and may not always, may not always be able to get to the treatment. And those, you know, in the future, those may be when we have treatment options, like those, those patients may be best served with a different kind of approach. Um, but I, I, I don't know that I would, I would withhold it from somebody who had a high IG level or maybe even had had a bad reaction. Cause again, many of those patients, that's, that's what the treatment's for. And many of those patients will do okay. It's just the, you know, we approach this empirically. Um, and I think it's, it's part of that shared decision-making conversation of understanding mm -hmm. where the, where the family's coming from, what the patient's coming from, what their goals of treatment are, what their, what kind of risk they're willing to assume, like how motivated they are and you know, how, how they're going to do um, in terms of adhering to the treatment. Because the other part is like there's the medical part, mm -hmm. and then there's like the, the family part and, the, and sort right. of the, the psychosocial part. Um, you know, um, is this somebody who is going to be communicative, who's going to get back to you, um, who's not going to call you, you know, multiple times every day, um, <laughs> but who's going to call you appropriately to make sure that, you know, you know what's going on, that they're not afraid to use epinephrine if they need to, um, that they're going to be adherent to the dosing instructions, that they're going to they're going to do things like have a couple hours of downtime, you know, after their dose. This is not something that somebody who's like a really busy competitive swimmer swimming seven days a week, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, that's going to be hard. So like all those other sort of softer indications, if you will, are right. important too. You know, one of the things I always think about is how risk and benefit are being measured and reported. I think reactions and and use of epinephrine are numbers that are be, can definitely be quantified. Increasing the threshold 
of peanut tolerated on the exit food challenge can be quantified. The benefit I think I always struggle with is what the patients seem to value the most, Mm -hmm. the buffer, the security, Mm -hmm. where avoidance is less about trapping your child or denying your child opportunities or denying yourself opportunities. And I think we're trying to measure that with quality of life. And that's what I always am interested in, that we talk about the benefit-risk conversation, but how do we compare those equally? If one is, frankly, I think mainly qualitative versus quantitative. I'd love your thoughts on that. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree. I think this is where the <clears throat> the pace meta-analysis in the Lancet you know, is absolutely right. Like when you go to look at the data, most studies don't report on this stuff. The studies that do report, report quality of life. Quality of life is a validated instrument, but it was not intended to measure a therapeutic outcome. I mean, it's it's a baseline measure. It originally wasn't even intended for longitudinal purposes. It was subsequently validated for longitudinal use, um, but it's not intended to measure changes after a therapeutic intervention. Um, and so I would argue that we don't have the right tools. Like, you're absolutely right. I mean, at the end of the day, um, why would a patient be treated? A patient would be treated um, to feel better. Um, the thing that's tricky about food allergy um, when thinking about this compared to a more burdensome daily disease like rhinitis or asthma where patients can actually report their symptoms, like they're coughing, they're wheezing, they're runny nose, their nasal congestion, uh, and they experience this regularly, and they can they can feel an improvement in their day-to-day symptom burden or whatever. With food allergy, you don't have a day-to-day symptom burden uh, until you're exposed, and, and most of the burden of the treatment is around the precautions that have to be taken to ensure that doesn't happen, um, and 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 the you know the the worry that 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 creates um, that knowing that. No matter how many precautions you take, you know you can never fully prevent an accident. People really have to rearrange their lives in a lot of ways. Um, and so, how do you how do you capture that? And right. like, and how do you show that a treatment returns somebody to a state that is much more like a normal life or more like the life that they would want to have? Right. Um, and that goes beyond just quality of life. Mm-hmm. It, it relates to to also like the 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 burden or cost of the treatment to them. In other words, like, you know, a treatment that returns them to a totally normal life, but that, you know, it involves adverse events that are more than they want to deal with. Sure. Is, you know, is, is not going to be a favorable treatment for that patient. Right. And that's going to be different. So, you know, really, I think this is a huge unexplored area, a huge gap, a huge need. We have to develop, um, outcome reporting tools that capture the experience of being treated uh, in terms of what it means to the patient um, from the patient themselves, um, not some sort of proxy measurement. Um, and, and you know, this is outcomes research. This is patient-centered outcomes research. This is where food allergy absolutely needs to go mm-hmm. because you're absolutely right. Like we measure double-blind placebo-controlled food challenges after 52 weeks of treatment, which is an irrelevant endpoint um, in the real world, you know, so to speak. Like, we're not going to do food challenges in patients being treated on a regular basis. We're certainly not going to do double-blinds. And 
you know, that, that threshold measurement is, is interesting, but ultimately how does that relate back to how the patient feels? Right. Um, so again, we're on the, perhaps the cusp of the January meeting where they're going to make the decision of this, this therapy, but clearly this is not where we're ending. So I'd love for you to comment or think about where we are and where we're going forward now that we're, uh, again, we have this one, the story is almost closing on this first product here. Yeah. So, um, you know, it breaks down for me in sort of kind of big buckets. One is to apply this kind of, the, the approaches that have been studied to other foods, you know, because mm-hmm. almost everything's been associated with peanut, right? So, um, how do these same approaches apply to other foods or different patient populations? So we're studying younger kids now with the same kind of approach. And maybe younger kids are easier to treat. Maybe they have different outcomes. Mm-hmm. Maybe you do see more clinical remission afterwards and get them more towards like a normal diet. Maybe you can't actually show that you're going to prevent um, you know, future hospital admissions or something. Like, you know, really disease-modifying type of right. outcomes maybe in younger kids with the same technologies. Um, so those are sort of like the me too, you know, immediately obvious next generation studies. Um, and then beyond that, I think you have the emergence of like new technologies. Um, OIT is an interesting approach. It's a, it's a step forward. It's a hundred year old idea. It's like you can explain it to a third grader and they understand what you're doing. You know, you're giving people small bits of what they're allergic to and kind of increasing over time. Um, there are technologies in development that are much more sophisticated that are now targeting very specific arms of the immune system or developing or sort of delivering um, the antigen in ways that is unique by route or by formulation. It's the, the antigen has been changed or it's even encoded in a DNA plasmid, mm-hmm. you know, um, there are all these biologic mm-hmm. response modifiers that are being, you know, um, studied, um, including, you know, not just IgE and its production, but actually the upstream events that ultimately result in IgE, where we might think we could actually, you know, again, intervene and, and switch off some of the really important mechanisms leading to food allergy. And so, um, you know, these are all very much in earlier stages of development, but um, I think it's reasonable to expect that the long-term position here is that, you know, we'll use these treatments to treat patients in the next five, 10 years, but that, you know, by the time that we're wrapping up our careers, um, the landscape looks totally different. Um, and, mm-hmm. you know, patients sometimes ask me like, well, so if I start on this treatment, like I have to continue it forever. And I say, well, um, there's no evidence that it cures anybody. Mm-hmm. So it's not realistic to say we could treat you for like a period of time and then stop and then your peanut allergy has gone away. It's to, it's to try to protect you and, and manage your peanut allergy a little better than it is now. And if you were to stop it, you'd kind of go back to being the way you are today. Um, in reality, I think people are going to continue this uh, until something better comes along and replaces mm-hmm. it, sure. which is I think is what's going to happen. Yeah. Um, the obvious, the other, the other thing that I didn't say is, um, an obvious, um, uh, early next, next stage priority is to see how combination treatments work. 
-hmm. you know, what happens if you use several things together or use one to start and then switch to the other for sort of like a long-term maintenance, whatever. I mean, there, uh, it's going to get really interesting. Um, and that's, that's, that illustrates why, you know, the point that you made a minute ago is so critical because in a landscape where patients have multiple options, now they have no options really. And, mm -hmm. you know, maybe they can see somebody in their community that can treat them. Maybe they're going to wait for this sort of more standardized approach. Um, you know, as that landscape starts to change and people have multiple potential options, um, knowing what matters to them and um, how they can navigate that landscape in a way that leads to a better life for them according to their values and preferences is is all the more imperative because it's only going to get more confusing. Like this is now, this is about as simple as the decision tree will ever be. Mm -hmm. It will only get more. And that, sure. that's why, yeah. that's why we really, this is a, I, I think a really urgent need. So where do you see biologics fitting into this new landscape? Um, well, I think, you know, one, one obvious approach, and I think what the, that's being studied now is sort of this so-called allergen Allerg plus strategy, mm -hmm. right? So you're giving immunotherapy under cover of a biologic. Right. Um, omalizumab has been mm -hmm. the most commonly studied in this regard. It seems to really help um, mitigate the safety mm -hmm. issues with OIT. Um, although it seems that there may be somewhat of a rebound um, when you stop omalizumab and it, and it wears off. Um, there may be sort of an uh, sort of an, an uptick in safety events. Um, uh, it's not really clear, um, but that's you know omalizumab is usually used as sort of a bridge. Right. You know, like pretreatment, uh -huh. you start OIT, you you treat through the updosing, and then you stop it, and right. you kind of bridge them to just plain OIT. That's a um, you know a possible, but not the only possible way. Um, you know, we just got notice of site activation um, for a study that we're doing with COFAR here and at nine other sites around the country where we're gonna be using omalizumab as monotherapy to start with, actually to see if omalizumab itself um, is sufficient to desensitize patients to not mm. only peanut but to two other foods. Um, and there's evidence from both small pilot studies and observational studies that that omalizumab by itself may do that. And there's plausibility given its mechanism of action mm -hmm. that you could have a nonspecific effect um, that renders effector cells less reactive and it doesn't matter what the particular triggering food is. Mm -hmm. um, so that's being studied um, uh, in addition to it, you know, it, it's, it's typical use as sort of a, um, a strategy to, uh, to, to minimize mm -hmm. some of the, the adverse events with, with OIT in the same study. Um, and then, you know, beyond sort of these allergen plus strategies, the question is like, are there biologics that might actually, if given at the right time to the right patient, prevent? You know, yeah. Like mm -hmm. really have a disease modifying impact. Mm -hmm. Um, and, or is, or is immunotherapy, always like is antigen always going to be required you know to to address the disease and i don't i don't think anybody really knows um uh but you know we're we're getting to asthma prevention studies with biologics and you know it's conceivable that that we could mm -hmm. test this idea in food allergy for sure
It's fascinating. Um, yeah, I did not know that. We were trying to use omalizumab for monotherapy, but uh, yeah. So it has. It actually has a um, a breakthrough uh, designation now from FDA for food allergy, um, and um, you know, it's conceivable if it if these early stage studies are borne out in a in a large you know multi center randomized control mm -hmm. trial that um, it, it could be assessed as a potential treatment by itself. Um, and if that were to be the case, then this would be a major advance, right? Because theoretically, it wouldn't matter what you were allergic to. Right. Um, it wouldn't matter how many foods there were. Um, you wouldn't have to expose yourself to allergen to gain benefit. Um, you would give it twice a month or once a month, and you would know that it was given. Right, so you're doing mm -hmm. it in the office. You're right. not having to. You're not having at home mm -hmm. exposure, which is, which is both potentially a safety concern and also it's hard to measure adherence. You never really know. If you you can imagine, you know the kids that really struggle, um, in terms of life threatening events and, and and the fatalities that we do see skew towards these older patients. You know, eighteen, nineteen year olds, um, from the from the the anaphylaxis registries. Um, you know, protecting a patient like that as they go off to college, mm -hmm. especially if they're allergic to multiple foods, is going to be really hard with the current approaches that we have. You put somebody like that on omelizumab if it were to work, you would know that they, they could just come to the infirmary, you know, once a month and get their shot and, and mm -hmm. you know, have some protection. Like, that would be a really useful thing if that were to be the case. I'm getting out ahead of myself. We don't know that. That's what we're studying. Right. Um, but as I say... You know, as I said a minute ago, I think the the landscape for patients is going to start to look very different in you know five, ten, fifteen years from now. Well, I mean, wow, Brian, I want to appreciate this conversation. It's so interesting, especially it's so exciting how what you said at the end really refers to what you said in the beginning. How this is still a very mysterious condition for a lot of us, and when we're looking, reflecting backward, we can see how much progress we've made, but mm -hmm. how many more unanswered questions. Um, I think I'd love for you to just make a final comment. If you know, if we have a lot of allergists who do listen in, and they're seeing this upcoming potential approval coming next year, what would be your best advice for them at this stage? Uh, just wait and see, or is there anything you you think they should be thinking about right now? Well. Um you know, for those that don't currently offer OIT, um, you know, probably a lot of folks are in in the, um, you know, wait and see approach, like, is this going to happen? Um, and then what do I do? And, and obviously that decision is going to be different for each practice. Um, I'm really interested to see kind of what the what the implementation looks like, what the utilization is. Um, I know that they're just in the process of going around and talking to folks. Like there are a lot of people who are really super excited. There are a lot of who, who are, you know, a little bit more cautious and waiting to see. Um, I think um, we ourselves right now here, because we don't do OIT and routine practice are, are going through the work to try to understand like what impact is this going to have um, in our clinic flow? Um, how are we going to need to staff this? 
what kind of slots are we going to need to build into our schedules? How are we going to manage the throughput of mm-hmm. patients, you know, and how does that impact our, our other business? Um, how many, how many patients can we reasonably treat, um, in a short time? Cause you have a big scale issue. You got 2% of the population affected, you know, huge, huge numbers of patients that might demand this treatment. Mm-hmm. How are we going to accommodate them? Um, right. apart from, you know, all the other unknowns, what's it going to cost and how's it going to be reimbursed? And, mm-hmm. you know, what is the economic impact to patients and to our practices and all these kinds of things? Um, and, and maybe it's hard to make these decisions without really knowing that. But I, I think, see. I think, you know, the more that people are starting to think about like, what does my practice need to look like to do this, um, uh, to get prepared for that? Because when, the decision comes down and we don't know when it's going to be, um, presumably it will, you know, kind of blow up Twitter and, and, and be a news alert and, you know, all that stuff will be on good morning America. Like it'll be a big deal, right? Cause there's never been a treatment for food allergy and this affects a lot of people. Um, and so naturally practices are going to get calls about this and patients are going to be interested in it. And so, you know, we want to be able to, um, provide access to the treatment in a way that's responsible and safe um, and equitable. Um, and that takes a lot of planning to do that. Um, so I know there are probably a lot of people out there thinking like, well, you know, how, how is this going to happen? And then I also think, you know, the, the college and the academy and other stakeholders um, will hopefully provide some guidance. I mean, that's what pe- people are naturally going to turn um, to, to organizations like that about what, what they can do, um, what they need to be thinking about. I'm sure there's obviously there's going to start to be lots of education workshops and, um, and, and things in the future to, to try to, um, help people understand how practice is going to change. Um, but you know, we've never had to change practice before in food allergy all at once. And, um, you know, it's a challenge. It's, right. it's, it's, it's fun. It's, it's like, this is what we've been waiting for, you know, yes. um, for forever to be able to, to do something for patients. And we have these meetings here and I'm meeting with all kinds of different folks, you know, our, our schedulers and our, 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 our IT folks about our electronic health record and our, our, our nursing managers. And we're all trying to sort of work through these issues about the best way to do things. And sometimes we get stuck and sometimes we don't know what the right answer is. And, we're making educated guesses and, and I, so I always sort of bring the, the group back to like, guys, we're, we're changing practice here. You know, um, let's, let's, let's come back to that. It seems maybe a lot to do, uh, a lot to take on, but like, we're going to be able to offer something to patients that they've never had before. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's not something you can just like look up in the back of the textbook and it tells you, tells you what to do. You know, you, you, it's, it's hard work. You're changing practice, but that's, you know, that's what, why we're all here. That's what we want to do. And, mm-hmm. um, and so it's a really, really exciting time in, in food allergy and, and in, in allergy in general. I mean, I think not just for those of us who think and breathe food allergy all the time and in general across the specialty, this is a big deal for our patients. And it's a, it's a way that people in practice can, can um, you know distinguish themselves and and offer something that's mm-hmm. you know kind of cutting edge and and it's as we talked about it's going to be the just the first time of of many things to come behind it. 
Definitely. Right. Yeah. Thank you, Brian, for your time. That was a really interesting conversation. Yeah, that was so interesting. <laughs> oh, and uh, again, if you enjoyed this podcast, uh, please rate our podcast on iTunes, Stitcher Online, and please give us any feedback, corrections, or suggestions. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, the email address for that is allergytalk at acaai.org. Have a wonderful day, everyone. Yeah, so I'll give you some feedback. I just wanted to say, um, I think you guys do a great job with this. I think Allergy Watch is a is a really nice, digestible way to um, to hear and in, in in this case hear about the the latest things that are being published or read if you prefer the print edition. But I think you guys do a great job with Stan. I I really enjoy listening to it in the car on the way to work. So keep it up. Um, great job. It's it's so cool that it's happening here. And I just really appreciate the invitation um, to have this conversation with you guys. I had a lot of fun, and um, thanks for having me. Oh, thanks, Thank Brian. Thank you. <laughs>